All right, you're opened up to John chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 21 today as we take our look at the second half of the Lord's ninth chronologically recorded sermon popularly known as the Good Shepherd Sermon, which is found in the first 18 verses of John chapter 10. It'll be a few more weeks or months before we get to the last part of John chapter 10. In our last lesson under part one, which we called the Discourse by Jesus, we learned that the Lord presented himself, first of all, in verses 1 to 6, as the scriptural shepherd, who alone entered into the sheepfold of Israel under the old covenant of Judaism by the what? By the door, verse 2, meaning by way of fulfilled messianic prophecy and by way of sinless obedience to all of the Mosaic law. Secondly, in verses 7 to 10, Jesus presented himself as the saving shepherd, who was not only the door through which Jewish sheep could enter into the new covenant blessing of Christianity and of grace, but he stated that he is also the door of salvation to all men both Jew and Gentile. And then in contrast to the thieving, stealing, murdering, destroying, false shepherds such as the Pharisees to whom he was speaking, Jesus promised the abundant life. Remember that beautiful verse, verse 10. He promised the abundant life to those that entered into this new fold of Christianity by way of him. And he promised them not only the abundant life, but he promised them salvation, eternal security, and eternal satisfaction. And that was all in verse 9. Now, in our lesson this morning, we will learn why the Lord was able to provide these three special spiritual blessings and privileges to his elect sheep, and that was because he was willing to give his life for those sheep. And this is what we will discuss in our third subdivision of this discourse in verses 11 to 15, which is entitled The Sacrificial Shepherd. We've looked at the scriptural shepherd and the saving shepherd. We'll begin today's lesson by looking at the sacrificial shepherd. And then in the last two divisions of our study of the characteristics of the Good Shepherd, we will take a look at the fact that Jesus was also the solitary shepherd and he was also the submissive shepherd. He was totally obedient to his Father. Then in conclusion in verses 19 to 21, really briefly and quickly, we will take a look at the consequence of this discourse by Jesus and what do you think that was? As usual, it was a division amongst the Jews, the Pharisees who had been listening to this whole discourse. So let's begin our lesson today by looking at the sacrificial shepherd in verses 11 to 15, if you'd read along with me. Look with me at starting at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I... Even so know I, the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We'll stop there at this point. Now, still speaking to the Pharisees, who had just excommunicated, remember, the blind from birth beggar, 
whom Jesus had miraculously healed on what day of the week? The Sabbath day, and that was a no-no. All right, still speaking to these Pharisees, Jesus next graphically contrasted their unfaithfulness as the shepherds over the flock of Israel with his own goodness and with his own fidelity, his own faithfulness. And we've already heard him speak of this contrast in verse 10, where in essence he stated that the false religious leaders of Israel were thieves who destroyed the lives of the sheep. Whereas he, the true scriptural good shepherd, gives life to the sheep. He not only provides them with the abundant life that we can have here and now in this world, but he promises them eternal life as well. Now, even though we've already been referring to Jesus as the good shepherd, actually, to this point in his sermon, he has not yet referred to himself by that title. But now, beginning in verse 11, in the fourth of the Lord's I Am statements, which are given to us in the Gospel of John, how many I Am statements do we have given in John? Seven. If ever you're in doubt and I ask you a numerical question, usually say seven and you're probably right. (laughs) There are seven I Am statements in John. This happens to be the fourth. Does anybody remember what the first three were? Yes, I am the light of the world. Well, let me give them in order. Yes, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. And then the one we just had last week opens and shuts. I am the door. Okay, those are the first three. Now I am the good shepherd. And then he goes on to say, And the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now the Greek word for good, used in describing the type of shepherd that he is, is kalos, K-A-L-O-S, which means intrinsically good, beautiful, fair. It's a word that is used to describe what is the ideal, the uh, model, the example after which others may safely imitate their own character and their own behavior. The actual Greek, and this you might want to jot down in the margin of your Bible, the actual Greek reads like this, and this is important. I am the shepherd, comma, the good. I am the shepherd, the good. And in making this statement, actually two things are quite clear in the way that he said it in the Greek. Two things would be very clear to his Jewish listeners. Remember, that's who he's speaking to. When they hear him say, I am the shepherd, the good, first of all, they know that in his reference to being the shepherd, they know that Jesus was claiming to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies which predicted that God would send quote-unquote, the shepherd. Remember, that's in Genesis 49:24, and also in Ezekiel 34:23, when God promises to send the greater son of David who would rightly and lovingly feed and tend to the flock of Israel. Now, the Jewish people understood that the Lord God in those verses and in other verses was speaking of the coming Messiah. When they heard him speak about this coming good shepherd, the shepherd, they knew that... He, that the prophets were speaking of the Messiah. So when Jesus says, I am the shepherd, they understand that that is a messianic claim. He is claiming to be the Messiah. And that isn't the first time, is it? Not by a long shot. Also, when they hear him say that I am the shepherd, the good, they would understand that that was a claim to deity. Because, as Jesus himself would later say in Mark 10, verse 18, there is none good but one. That is who? God. 
So by saying, I am the shepherd, the good, he's claiming to be Messiah and God. And as an added footnote of interest, let me say here, and this is kind of fun, that the prophets were not the only by, they were not the only means by which God had foretold of the coming good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He also foreshadowed Christ in his character and in his role as a shepherd through prophetic types. And you know how much I like to talk about types. In the Old Testament, there were five individual shepherds who by some aspect of their own lives pointed or foreshadowed Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, the true shepherd. Now, the first shepherd, can anybody, I'll trivia question, anybody know who was the first shepherd ever recorded in the Bible? Abel, good Jan, Abel was the very first shepherd, there he is up there with his sheep. Genesis 4-2 tells us that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, therefore Abel was a shepherd. Now, the aspect of Abel's life, which exemplified the coming Christ, or the coming good shepherd, was his death. Because, as we know, he was killed by the wicked, jealous hands of his own brother, according to the flesh. Jesus also, we know, was killed by the wicked and the jealous hands of his brothers, according to the flesh. Now, the second shepherd to foreshadow some aspect of Christ, the good shepherd, was Jacob. The prominent thing about Jacob, and I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but you can look up about Jacob and how he took care of Laban's sheep, you know, and he separated the spotted and the speckled, and he went through all this passing under the rods of the green poplar and everything. But the prominent thing about Jacob in regard to him being a type of the good shepherd was his care. For his sheep. Now the third shepherd to point to Christ was Joseph, and Joseph was the favorite son of his father who fed his father's flock, not his own flock, he fed his father's flock, that's in Genesis 37 too. The fourth shepherd was Moses. Exodus 2, 16 and 17 says this about Moses, that Moses kept the flock of Jethro, Jethro was his father-in-law, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert where he then spoke to God from a burning bush. The fifth shepherd who um, foreshadowed Christ was David. We couldn't leave out David. David foreshadowed him in the fact that he was willing to sacrifice his own life for the sheep. And we have this told to us by David himself. David gave this account of himself and his experience as a shepherd to King Saul. He said, thy servant, meaning himself, kept his father's sheep. Isn't that interesting? It's not, not their own sheep, but their father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. Took that little lamb right out of the bear lion's mouth. And when he rose against me, I don't know which one he's talking about here, the bear or the lion. But either one, I don't think I'd stick my hand in his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And of course, with that kind of experience, no wonder he wasn't afraid to face Goliath. Now, another way that we could view these five partial types, picture types of Christ, the good shepherd, is to see that Abel 
Can you see that? Yeah. Abel was the righteous shepherd. Jacob was the resourceful shepherd. And he was indeed very resourceful in all the little techniques he got he used to multiply his flocks. Joseph was the rejected shepherd, rejected by his own brothers again. Moses was the returning shepherd, wasn't he? He left Egypt, went out and was a shepherd for a while, but he returned to deliver his people. David, of course, was the royal shepherd. Jesus himself is not only the righteous and the resourceful, the rejected, the returning, the royal shepherd, he is also the... Anybody think of what I'm going to use? Redeeming shepherd. Jesus is the redeeming shepherd, for he gave his life to redeem his sheep. Now, there is another shepherd referred to in the Old Testament. Would you flip over to Zechariah 11, please? If you just go to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, Zechariah is one book in front of Malachi. Because Zechariah can easily get lost. He's just squeezed in there with all the minor prophets. But he's right before Malachi. Look at Zechariah chapter 11. This next shepherd is the anti-type of Christ. And he is called the idle shepherd. Look at Zechariah 11 verses 16 and 17. He's called the idol, I-D-O-L. There's a picture of him. You can see why he's called an idol. Zechariah, speaking for God, says this about this coming, this is prophetic, this coming idol shepherd. He says, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off. Like the blind beggar who'd been cut off, you know, excommunicated. This shepherd won't care about men like that, like Jesus did. He will not visit them. Neither shall he seek the young, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that stand out still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leave the flock. And what will the idle shepherd, this is obviously you know by now, the Antichrist. What does he do after he makes a peace treaty with Israel, the flock of God? He leaves the flock in the middle, doesn't he? After three and a half years, he deserts them. He leaves them to get destroyed by the wolves that come. So he says, Woe to the idle shepherd that leave the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and an arm symbolizes strength his strength will be dried up and it says in his right eye and a right eye symbolizes intelligence his right eye shall be utterly darkened Zechariah chapter 11 is really an interesting chapter because it tells us if you read through the whole chapter which I think you're going to be doing in your homework I think I have a question on that uh, it tells us that the true shepherd of Israel will be rejected and abhorred. Look up at verse 8, or down, wherever it is on your page. It's up on my page. He will be rejected and abhorred by the other shepherds, which wasn't he, isn't he, in our study? The false shepherds abhor him. They can't wait to get rid of him. And look at verses 11 and 12. This is fascinating. If you've never seen this before. It says that he will be sold for how many pieces of silver? 
30 pieces of silver. And this money is going to be cast to the potter in the house of the Lord. And what happens after Judas has paid his betrayal money for Jesus, 30 pieces of silver? He knows that he has betrayed an innocent man, and he casts the money down in the temple, in the Father's house. And what is that money then used to purchase? Potter's Field. Who wrote this book? Who could write that book? I mean, people say Jesus purposely fulfilled all the prophecies, you know, so they could claim to be the Messiah. No way could he have fulfilled that. No way. That's what gets me so excited about the study of types and the study of prophecy because when you study them, there is no doubt about it that God wrote this book. So Zechariah prophesied that after Israel, and this is all in this 11th chapter, after Israel would reject the true shepherd, she would accept a foolish and a worthless idol shepherd. The one that we just read about in verses 16 and 17. And this is a prophecy of the end time antichrist who will do the very opposite of the good shepherd instead of loving and dying for the sheep he will destroy them he will destroy Israel and tear them to pieces and Jesus himself predicted this already we saw this when we were back in John chapter 5 verse 43 when he said I am come in my father's name and ye receive me not. And then he said, If another shall come in his own name, him ye shall receive. And that's exactly what will happen. When Jesus came in his, own, in his Father's name on earth, they rejected him. The flock of Israel rejected their own Messiah. But soon to come is another shepherd, an idle shepherd, a foolish, wicked shepherd. Him they will receive. So then the idle shepherd, the Antichrist, is the... Did you count? Were you counting how many shepherds did we have already? We had five. And what is he? He is the sixth shepherd. What is his number to be? 666. Isn't the Bible perfect? And then, you know, after this, after Zechariah 11, there is only one other shepherd ever mentioned in the entire Bible. And who do you think that is? The one we're talking about now in John chapter 10. The good shepherd. And what number does he happen to be? Seven. Isn't that wonderful? So he is the good shepherd because he is the perfect shepherd. The number seven is the number of perfection. He is the perfect shepherd because he is God. All right. As the good shepherd, Jesus does good things for his flock. The primary purpose of a shepherd is what? To take care of the sheep that are under his care. And this involves protecting them and it involves defending them when they come under the attack of their enemies. The distinguishing mark of a truly good shepherd, especially in biblical days, was the fact that he was willing to risk his life in order to save the sheep. That is why David was such a good shepherd, because he risked his own life against the lion and against the bear rather than let one of his little lambs be taken from him. We need to keep in mind the fact that the Jewish shepherds back in Palestine in the first century did not tend their sheep in order to sell them for slaughter. 
unless they were special flocks that were being raised for sacrificial purposes to be sacrificed in the temple. But most shepherds tended their sheep for the wool and the milk and the little lambs that they provided. As the perfectly good shepherd, Jesus demonstrated his love for his sheep by laying down his own life for them in order to eternally protect them from the very worst enemy of all, not just the lions and the bears and the wolves, but the worst enemy of all, which is death, sin and death. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. It's worth noting, I think, that under the old covenant of Judaism, it was the sacrificial sheep which died for the shepherd to be an atonement for the sins of the shepherd. However, now, under the new covenant of Christianity, it was the shepherd who died to atone for the sins of the sheep. Isn't that beautiful? Just a complete reversal. Five times in this sermon, Jesus affirmed the sacrificial nature of his upcoming death. And that's in verses 11 and verses 15, and then three times in verses 17 to 18. So there are five times he talks about his sacrificial death. And five happens to be the number of, does anybody know in the Bible? Grace. Five is the number of grace. So again, that fits perfectly. And we are counting all of these five times together as the 18th recorded forecast in our chronological study of the Lord's life. This is a forecast of his upcoming death. We're about five and a half months away from his actual death. He knew ahead of time what was going to happen. Many faithful shepherds throughout the centuries have died, have given their lives in their attempt to protect their sheep from the savage beasts and the thieves and the robbers, but the death of the Lord Jesus Christ differed from that of any other shepherd. How, we might ask? Well, the death of a mere shepherd never benefited his sheep. In fact, when he died trying to save his sheep from harm, it actually meant the certain destruction of those sheep because then there would be no one left to protect them, would there? I mean, if you see this shepherd here, if he was to uh, get eaten up by these wolves, those wolves would just go right to those sheep. His death would not benefit his sheep by one bit. Jesus' death, however greatly benefited his sheep because of the fact that his death was on their behalf. His death for them meant that they would never have to suffer spiritual and eternal death themselves. His death, in contrast to the death of just a regular human shepherd, meant life for his sheep. And this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet predicted when he wrote in Isaiah 53 verse 5 that he, the Messiah, would be wounded for our transgressions and he would be bruised for our iniquities and that the chastisement of our peace would be laid upon him and that with his stripes we would be what? Healed. Why was his suffering and his death necessary? Again, we go to Isaiah. Isaiah told us it was because all we like sheep have gone where? Astray. 
we have each one turned to his own way. So the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's in verse 6, Isaiah chapter 53, a wonderful, beautiful chapter. You all need to read it and study it. Jesus' death paid the penalty for the sins of the sheep. He was our good shepherd, substitute, sin bearer. He laid down his life so that we could receive our life. We, then, being the stray sheep, if we would pause long enough from doing our own thing and from going our own way to realize and recognize and appreciate the true meaning of his death on our behalf, then in faith trust him and ask him for forgiveness, and then we are forgiven and we become the recipients of that free gift of eternal life which he alone can and does offer to us. And I hope everyone in here has turned to him. If you're a sheep that has gone astray, that you would ask Jesus to be your good shepherd and would ask him to forgive your sins and believe in your heart that he did die as the atonement for your sins and was resurrected again on the third day for you. And he will come into your heart as your Lord and Savior. Now the word giveth in verse 11 where it says the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep literally means layeth down. He layeth down his life for the sheep. Jesus willingly, freely, and voluntarily gave up his life as a ransom for the sheep so that they might be delivered from death experiencing the second death, eternal separation from God. And this was the announcement that Isaiah also predicted in the 53rd chapter of his book, where under divine inspiration he said, For the transgression of my people, my sheep, was he stricken. And this too is what the angel had told Mary. In Matthew 1.21 he said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, his sheep, from their sins. And the Lord himself spoke about this on the night of his arrest when he introduced the Lord's Supper by saying, This is my blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, which is shed for many, many sheep for the remission of sins. Then in verse 12, Jesus, symbolically speaking of the Pharisees, and I think they're beginning to catch on that he is talking about them, and other false religious leaders, contrasts himself again to them. He, was, he said that the hireling watches over the sheep only because he is paid to do so. They are not his own sheep. He's being paid to watch over somebody else's sheep. So he really doesn't care very much about the sheep. The danger comes for this hireling, not in the fact that he is paid for his work, but in the fact that he cares more about the pay than he does about the work. He loves the pay more than he loves the work, and he loves the pay more than he loves the sheep. A hireling also will not work and take care of the sheep unless he is paid for what he does. And as you know, I'm sure there are hirelings in God's service today. And they are those shepherds who merely fill their position for the advantages that it brings to them personally. 
This is precisely what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Herodians and all the other religious leaders were, the scribes as well. Jesus had already referred to them as thieves and robbers in the first half of our sermon here in verses 1 and 8 and 10, and also as strangers in verse 5. And now he is calling them hirelings, not very flattering. And you can imagine why they get upset by the time he finishes this sermon. They didn't care for the people. We know that as we've been looking at the life of Christ, we know that they did not really care for the people that they were supposed to be um, taking care of. They didn't protect the people of Israel when they were in spiritual danger. And at the time of Christ, they were in deep spiritual danger. They were about as calloused and as cold toward the Jewish sheep as any leaders could possibly be. The poor man at the pool of Bethesda, back in John chapter 5, had been impotent for how many years? 38 years, and then was suddenly and miraculously healed by Jesus on the Sabbath day, of course. And a true shepherd of this sheep would have really rejoiced in his heart and been glad for the man that finally this lame sheep after 38 years of being impotent finally was made whole but the hireling Pharisees merely responded by getting angry at the sheep for carrying his bed pallet on the Sabbath day I mean that shows what kind of people they were they were hirelings they truly didn't care for the sheep And we saw, too, how they had no compassion for the woman that was caught in adultery and had very possibly even set her up by way of a trap so that they could use her situation to ensnare Jesus, discredit him publicly. And remember, we suspected this because of the fact that they didn't bring forward her sinning partner, even though they said that they had caught her in the very act of adultery. That was in John 8, 4. These hireling Pharisees that had brought her before Jesus merely hoped to use her shame and to use even her death as a means to ensnare Jesus theologically. So they did not care one bit for the woman who was a sheep. And of course, we've just had the example of their cold indifference to the sheep of their fold, by the example that we had in the blind beggar in John 9, rather than rejoicing with him over the fact that for the first time in his entire life, because he'd been born blind, first time in his whole life, he had received his sight, the Pharisees instead tried to intimidate him into denying that the miracle had ever taken place at all. And then when they failed to get him to at least admit that his benefactor was a sinner, what did they do? They mercilessly cast him out of all the social and religious life of Israel by excommunicating him. So you see, a hireling doesn't care about the sheep. He only really cares about himself. Now, as you can well guess, and as you also know, there are men just like this in the ministry today, as I said earlier. There are men who call themselves pastors, which, by the way, is the Latin word for shepherd. That's where we get the word pastor. It's the Latin word for shepherd. So when you call your pastor pastor, you're really calling him shepherd. And there are men who call themselves priests who are really nothing more than hirelings. 
they are nothing more than professional religious men who are only interested in their flocks for the personal gain that they can receive from those sheep. And the Apostle Peter foresaw the danger of this happening. So he warned the first century pastors against using their positions for financial gain. He said in 1 Peter 5, 2, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight of it, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, which is money. Don't do it. Don't feed the flock for money, but of a ready mind. He was telling these first century pastors that they were to oversee their flocks with eager and willing uh, willing spirits and not just with a motive for monetary gain, nor were they to do it for power or prestige or self-glory. A true shepherd will be willingly paid by the sheep over whom he guides. They will willingly pay him if he really is a true shepherd. It says in our lesson next week that we'll get to in Luke 10, it says the laborer is worthy of his hire. So he should not worry about the Lord meeting his needs. If he's doing his job, the sheep will know it and they will pay him for his hire. But he should not be laboring just for the hire. He should be feeding and caring for the sheep because he so loves the owner of the flock and because he so wants to serve that owner by tending to his sheep. And again, that's what Jesus said to Peter, isn't it? When he says, if you love me, what will you do? You will feed my sheep because you love me so much and you will tend to my lambs. The time of testing a man's true character whether he is a hireling or a true shepherd, generally comes when there is a crisis, when danger approaches. When is it that the hireling will give evidence of his true character? It tells us right here in in the scripture. It says, when he sees the wolf coming. I think that's uh, down there in verse 12. When he sees the wolf coming, a true shepherd will stay with his flock even when the dangerous times come. And he will stick with them even through the times of trouble. But a hireling will desert his flock in their hour of need in order to save his own neck. A hireling or a false shepherd really cares nothing for the eternal souls of his sheep. He's willing to have the name and the profession of a pastor or a shepherd or a priest, but he really has no heart for his work. Neither does he have any real power for his work. He cannot really uh, protect his sheep against the assaults of the chief wolf. Who is the chief wolf, do you think? Satan. can't really protect his sheep against the attacks of Satan because a hireling himself is unsaved and does not have the armor of God to even protect himself against the fiery darts of the wicked one, much less those in his flock. The greatest secret of a true shepherd, of a useful and a Christ-like man of God, is that he himself knows the good shepherd the Lord Jesus Christ. I have up here, a true shepherd knows the good shepherd. And he will have, because of that, a real love 
for the souls of men. So the man who is in the shepherding ministry merely to get a, earn a living or to earn some kind of respect to feed his ego is an hireling. And he's the hireling that Jesus speaks of in these verses. A true shepherd's first care is for his sheep. A false shepherd's first care is for who? For himself. And the Lord, as you know, never spoke as strongly in denunciation, in condemnation against anyone as he did against false shepherds. And the reason I think is obvious. It's because other sinful men ruin only themselves. But false shepherds not only bring themselves into eternal destruction, but they ruin their flocks right along with them. They're the blind leaders of the blind, and they all fall into the ditch together. They make their proselytes twice fold the child of hell that they are. Isn't that what we just read last time? So that's why the Lord is so strong in his words against the Pharisees and the scribes. Then in verse 14, Jesus repeated his I am statement and said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As we learned in our lesson last time, Jesus the good shepherd has an intimate relationship with his sheep, with each and every one of them. He knows them. He knows not only their names, their individual names. He even knows your middle name. He knows your maiden name. He knows every part of your name. He knows how you spell it. But he knows where each sheep lives. He knows where they were born. He knows where they are now. He knows where they'll be when they die. He knows the moment they become his. Sometimes some of us don't even know the moment we became his, but he does. He knows the precise second on the clock when you became his. He knows their idiosyncrasies and he knows their peculiarity. One sheep might be particularly afraid of the dark valleys, while another sheep might be afraid of the shadows at night. Another one might be afraid of the high places up there. Jesus knows all these things. He knows our secret fears. And he takes them into consideration as he tends to his flock. You know, each of his 12 apostles were distinctly different. And yet Jesus knew how to individually deal with each and every one of them. He knows the trials and he knows the heartaches of all of his sheep, as well as knowing their victories and their joys. He knows all their little behavior patterns, and he knows their personalities. And since he has millions of sheep, literally, can you imagine? I don't even know how many millions of sheep over the centuries. Has millions of them. This claim of his, knowing his sheep, is a claim to omniscience. And since no one but God is omniscient, this is another claim to deity. Because no one but God could know so many sheep so intimately. In fact, he knows each sheep, this is interesting, he knows each sheep better than that sheep actually knows himself. True, isn't it? He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows even our sin, uh, hidden sins, sometimes those sins that we don't even know that we're doing. And that's the amazing thing about the Good Shepherd, that even though, though he knows our hidden sins and he knows each and every one of our weaknesses and our failures, yet he still 
wants to commune with us. And he still wants us to draw nearer and nearer and nearer to him and to enjoy our time with him, to enjoy being with him. He knows us, yet he still says that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and he still wants our fellowship. He accepts, he accepts us as we are, which is with our spots and our wrinkles and our warts, our gray hairs and everything. Now, the Lord in that verse also said, this is verse 14, he also said that the sheep know him. He said he knows the sheep. And the sheep know him. And that word know is the Greek word for a real intimate intimacy, a real intimate kind of knowing. They know him with the knowledge of faith and confidence in him as their faithful and true and good shepherd. They know him with a loving trust, which the unbeliever can't even begin to understand. When we say, I know that I'm saved and I know my Lord, they can't begin to comprehend how we can know someone that we can't even see. They know him, the sheep know him as their sure friend and as their guide in life, as their savior, as their anchor. And they take rest in this knowledge of his person and in his character. You see, the devil and the demons understand and know that Christ is the savior. But the sheep know and understand that he is their savior and there is a world of difference in the two i read something this week in one of my commentaries which i thought was worth injecting into this lesson although it really should have been in part one of this lesson but since i can't go back in time i'm going to bring it up now and this uh goes back to when we were discussing the job of the porter the doorkeeper who watched over the village sheepfold while the shepherd slept. Remember that? The good shepherd never leaves his flock, does he? A good shepherd would not desert his sheep, not even for a minute. That's all it might take for the wolf to come in. So he never leaves his, his flock, except there's, there's one time, there's one exception to this truth. He leaves them physically when he commits them to the care of the porter or the doorkeeper. And that is when it is what? What time of day? That's when it's night, because then he goes into his own home to sleep. Jesus had just recently told his disciples in John 9, verse 4, that he must work the works of him that sent him while it was yet day, because the night was soon coming, wasn't it? And that night was to be the time when he would have to leave his flock physically because he would ascend and go back up to be with the Father. However, they would, he saw to it that they would not be left unprotected. And why was that? Because he would leave them to the care of the porter, the doorkeeper, who we said in our last lesson represented not only immediately John the Baptist, but in the wider application represented who? Exactly, the Holy Spirit. During the night of Christ's physical absence from his flock, the Holy Spirit, the doorkeeper, has been taking care of God's elect sheep. Isn't that beautiful? I also thought it would be worth mentioning, and that's why it always takes us so long to get through everything, uh, the fact that there are two other passages in the New Testament, besides this one here in John chapter 10, which present Christ as the shepherd. And in both of those places, we find a different adjective 
before the word uh, shepherd. Hebrews 13.20 is one of them. You don't really need to turn there because I think you will be in your homework. (laughs) Hebrews 13.20, we discover that Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep. It says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's in Hebrews 13.20, the great shepherd. Then in 1 Peter 5.4, he's referred to as the, anybody know? Yes, chief shepherd. Peter wrote this, he says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive, ye shall receive a crown of glory which fadeth not away. Now notice the order of these three shepherd titles of our Lord. In John 10, which is chronologically the first one, the direct reference to his title as the good shepherd is in reference to his death because he says the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. That's in verse 11. Then in Hebrews 13, which is the next chronological reference to Jesus as shepherd. He's called the great shepherd in reference to his resurrection. It says in that passage that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd. So the first one's in reference to his death. The second one's in reference to his resurrection. And then in 1 Peter, which is the last of these three references, he is called the chief shepherd in direct reference to his what return when he shall be revealed to all as not only the lord of lords and the king of kings but also as the chief shepherd of all shepherds so he is the good shepherd in his death for the sheep he is the great shepherd in his resurrection for the sheep and he will be manifested as the chief shepherd in his return for the sheep and by the way how many titles were there three and what is three the number of the trinity again perfect so we may as well at this point talk a little bit about sheep why not Since the scripture and the Lord referred so frequently to his people to redeem people as that particular animal, we might as well ask why of all the animals in the whole world did he refer to his redeemed people as sheep? Well, for one thing, under the Mosaic law, the sheep was one of the few clean animals, which is why they were used as the main animal for sacrificial purposes and why Jesus himself who is the sinless clean perfectly clean sacrifice was referred to as the what lamb of god in this respect a sheep adequately symbolizes god's redeemed people who have been cleansed from all their sin by by their faith in christ also sheep are harmless animals God's people, too, are to be harmless. We're to be as harmless as doves. And remember in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're smitten on one cheek, what are we to do? We're to turn the other cheek and let our enemy hit us on the other cheek. We're to be harmless. Sheep are also defenseless animals. God created the sheep with absolutely no way to attack other animals, with absolutely no way they could defend themselves. Their bite 
is not dangerous. Their claws are not sharp. They can't run very fast. They can't climb up a tree to get away from their enemy. They can't swim very well. They certainly can't camouflage themselves into the environment. I mean, they stand out pretty obvious white in their environment. They can't dig a hole to hide in. They have no odor, no particular odor, to drive away their enemies like a skunk. They have no venom to poison their enemies. They have no horns, you know, so that they could buck their enemies. They have no sharp needles like a porcupine to repel their enemies. They are completely, without the aid and the help of their shepherd, um, they would just be completely defenseless and they would all surely in time perish. So too, believers are completely defenseless apart from Christ, their true shepherd. Jesus himself stated that without me, ye can do nothing. Sheep are also gentle animals. They are peaceful animals. And likewise, Christians are to be gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, as James 3.17 states. And we are also to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. The sheep are utterly dependent upon the shepherd, not only for their protection, but also for leading them to the pastures where they can receive their nourishment and to the still waters. Christians are dependent upon Christ for their physical and their spiritual nourishment. And those are all positive things, but one, one negative characteristic about sheep is their proneness to wander. Even if they are placed in an area with a fence completely around them, if there happens to be one little tiny gap in that fence, guess what? The sheep will get out and he will stray away. And this, unfortunately, is also true of believers. How easily believers are tempted by some little gap in the hedge of protection around them to get out and to stray away. And that is why Jesus spoke uh, several parables about sheep who had wandered off and who had to be searched for by the shepherd and brought back to the fold. Furthermore, sheep are also useful animals because they provide a great crop of warm wool each and every year. And this, too, prefigures the Christian, or should prefigure the Christian, who should be beneficial in what he produces for the Good Shepherd. He should be producing works which are as white as wool in the purity in bo of both his attitude and his motive for his service, for why he is serving the Lord. Then in verse 15, Jesus compared his intimate knowledge of his sheep and their knowledge of him, this is amazing, with his own close and intimate knowledge of God the Father. He said, as the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now that really is, if you look at it, examine it, and think about what he's saying there, that is a remarkable statement. He was saying that the mutual knowledge between him and his sheep was like that which exists between him and his father. It's a knowledge which is so intimate and which is so spiritual and which is so blessed that there simply is no higher analogy that I could make which would do justice to the closeness of the relationship that Jesus is talking about having here with his sheep. 
His love for his sheep and his knowledge of his sheep is comparable to his love and his knowledge of God. Therefore, I think we can better understand why it was that he was willing to lay down his life for the sheep, as he again states in the latter half of that verse, verse 15. So we see that the good shepherd is not only the scriptural and the saving shepherd, but he is also the sacrificial shepherd. And now in the next verse, we're just going to take one verse, verse 16, we will see that he is also the solitary shepherd because he was the one and only shepherd who could and would bring his sheep together in one fold. Look at verse 16. He says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Up to this point, except for verse 9, where Jesus stated that any man could enter into the door of salvation, which was by way of him, he was really speaking about Jewish sheep, except for verse 9. Now, however, he begins to talk about Gentile sheep. In verse 16, the Lord informs his proud Jewish listeners who are the Pharisees, remember, all along he's talking to the Pharisees, that he has other sheep which are not of this fold. He was telling them that the good shepherd would have Gentile sheep in his flock as well as Jewish sheep. The middle wall of partition between Jew and Greek was to be broken down. He is our peace who hath made both believing Jew and believing Gentile one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition. That's what it tells us in Ephesians 2.14. Since the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the good shepherd has been gathering his sheep from every nation of the world through the preaching of the gospel. Both Jews and Gentiles alike have heard his voice and have come together in one fold under one shepherd, one solitary shepherd. There is no longer any difference in Christ between Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, black or white, rich or poor, male or female, slave or free. All are equal in Christ. All who are his, his true sheep belong to one flock. And there has only been one shepherd in all of history who has ever been able to take such diversity and make it into such unity and such peacefulness. And that one shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ, the solitary shepherd. Now let's look at him as the submissive shepherd, verses 17 and 18. He says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. In these last two verses, and just bear with me because we have to give these time. They're very important. The last two verses of the Good Shepherd Sermon... Jesus here presents himself as the submissive shepherd. For in his submission to the Father, he was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. He was obedient to his Father's will. 
What Jesus did in caring and in guiding and in feeding and in dying for the sheep, he did because of the fact that he is a faithful and submissive servant to his father. And his death was a voluntary act of submission to the will of the father so that he might redeem those who were his father's sheep. From man's perspective, it appeared that Jesus was executed. But from the divine perspective, as Jesus is stating here in these two verses, he willingly laid down his life for the sheep. In verse 17, he says, I lay down my life. And in verse 18, he says, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Now that is a truth of immense importance. Jesus was not powerless to prevent his sufferings and his cruel mistreatment at the hands of his enemies, as unbelievers might be prone to argue. He knew that he was going to suffer and die because he came to this earth in the first place in order to suffer and die. And this here, in verses 17 and 18, is not the first time that he has predicted his own death. If he truly had wanted to escape his enemies, he could have easily left Israel, just walked right out of the country. He was knew how to walk real well. He could have just walked right out of Israel, especially since he had all this foresight to know what was actually going to happen to him. But all that he endured by Judas's betrayal and the arrest in the garden the unjust trial before Caiaphas, the insults of Herod's soldiers, the trial before Pilate, the jeers of the people, the walk to Calvary, and the crucifixion itself were all voluntarily endured. No one could have touched a single hair of his holy head unless he had given them permission to do so. Do you remember the study that we had on Abraham and Isaac which we learned was a type in picture of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. Remember the ram, which was also a type of Jesus because it was placed on the altar as a substitute for Isaac? How was that ram caught? How was it caught? By its horns in the thicket. Horns throughout the scripture symbolize power and strength. That's the animal's power, and that's his strength. That's how he fights. As a type of Christ, this fact about the ram tells us that our sin substitute, our Savior, did not succumb to death through weakness and through his own inability to resist his enemies, but that he gave up his life in the full power of his strength. Actually, he was, as a man, in the full power of his strength at the age of 33. That is when a man is at the full power of his strength. It wasn't the nails which held the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. It was the power and the strength of his love for the Father and his love for the sheep that held him to that cross. At every point... In the Lord's life, we see that he was in total control and that no man took his life from him, but that he laid it down of his own will. We have repeatedly seen that when the Pharisees wanted to take Jesus before it was the appointed hour, 
he was able to always escape their arrests. We don't know how, but he just miraculously would slip through, you know, through their hands. But when the time for his death was ripe, Jesus made even his arrest easy for his enemies. He purposely went to the Garden of Gethsemane that night, knowing that that would be where Judas would come to look for him. The religious leaders didn't want to arrest Jesus in broad daylight because they still feared that the multitudes would rebel if they did so. So knowing this, Jesus purposely at night made his arrest simple for them. And when Judas and the Roman soldiers and the temple police did arrive, he was waiting for them. He knew they were coming. In fact, in John 18, he had just said, "No, um, Jesus, it says this, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? He saw them coming, and he didn't run. He went to them. And said, Whom seek ye? And when they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, he said to them, Oh, I love this. He said, I am. And then the scripture records that when he said, I am, all the men, and there could have been hundreds of men, all the men went backward and fell to the ground. Why? Because of the power of his name. All he had to say was, I am. And all these Roman soldiers and temple police fell to the ground. Apparently, accompanying his words, which spoke of his deity, came a glorious flash of divine power, which was so strong, it knocked mortal men to the ground. It was the good shepherd's way of telling his sheep, his frightened sheep, his disciples, that he was in charge. Don't worry, guys. I'm in control here. No uh, Roman army could overtake him without his approval. He was in control, and he could smite every single one of them, if he so desired, with just a word of his mouth. And then he told the army not to arrest his disciples. He said, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek me, let these, my sheep, go their way. And guess what happened? The soldiers obeyed. They let the disciples go. And that's amazing. Hundreds of soldiers were standing before one man to arrest him. They all fell over when he said two words. And then they all obeyed his command. You see, he wasn't their captive at all. He was the king giving orders, and they were obeying. And he continued to be in control all through that night of his arrest, his trials, and his mistreatment. And he was even in control on the cross. What we see when we read the gospel accounts about the Lord's last hours before his crucifixion was that he allowed men to arrest him even after he had demonstrated their powerlessness to do so by saying, I am, and they all fall over. He remained silent before his various accusers, though Matthew 26, verse 53, tells us that 12 legions of angels were ready to come to his rescue. All he had to do was say the word, and they would be there. 
And then he allowed himself to be crucified even though he had enough power to shake the earth to its very foundation, as it states in Matthew 27, 51 and 52. Even death itself didn't have control over Jesus. He did not succumb to death. As you read in the obituary, so-and-so succumbed. Jesus did not succumb to death. He gave up his own spirit in his own time. He waited until all of the appropriate messianic scriptures were fulfilled. The last one being the offering of the vinegar on the hyssop. And then when that prophecy was fulfilled, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. John 19.30 You see, his last statement, it is finished, was not the defeated moan of a mere man. It was the triumphant and victorious shout of the Son of God who had just completed the work of redemption for his father's sheep. You see, his head didn't slump. Normally, when a person dies, their head slumps away in death. But it says that he bowed his head in submissive royalty to his father's will. And then he dismissed his own spirit. Jesus said, No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And then he also foretells of his own resurrection. And this is our 19th forecast because he says that I might take it again. And in verse 18 he says, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. Amazing Savior we have. He is God. I don't know how anybody can read this and not know that he is God. The Lord not only claimed to have control and power over the circumstances concerning his own forecasted death, but he also was claiming to have power, the power in himself to take his life back up again from death. Some have been confused about who exactly raised Jesus from the dead. Now the Jehovah Witnesses who do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ use such scriptures as Romans 6.4 to support the fact that Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. And they use this to say Jesus was not God. Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. But that God the Father did. But no one scripture, remember Debbie told you this last week, no one scripture is ever to be used out of context without the rest of scripture in order to prove a point. You don't just pull a scripture out of context or you can prove just about anything in the world. You have to take the whole Bible together. If we consider all of the scriptures regarding who raised Christ from the dead, we will actually find that the Bible supports the truth of a triune Godhead. And that, of course, is another doctrine which the Jehovah Witnesses deny. Let's begin with Romans 6.4 because that's the one that they use. It states that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So there, as they do teach, it says that God the Father raised Christ. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. 
But let's also take a look at what Jesus himself said. Not only in John 10, 17, 18, where he says that he raised himself, um, but let's also consider John 2, 19, where he said to the religious leaders, destroy this temple. And they thought he was talking about the literal temple, but he was talking about his own body. He said, destroy this temple. And in three days, who will raise it up? I will raise it up. So the scripture not only states that the Father raised Christ, but it states that Christ raised Christ. But there's another verse. Well, there's a lot of verses. I'm just pulling three of them. In Romans 8, 11, it says this, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So there is no contradiction at all in any of these verses. All of them are true. So who was it that raised Jesus from the dead? It was the triune God. Now, of course, after making such an obvious claim to deity again, you can imagine there was a stirring among the Lord's hearers, and so there was again a division among the Jews. Let's look at the last two verses, and I'm only five minutes from finishing. There was a division, therefore, among again among Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil, and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? By this time, the Pharisees had caught on to the fact that the thieves, the robbers, the strangers, the false shepherds, and the hirelings were none other than them. And this infuriated the majority of them. Note the word many, it says in verse 20, the majority of them, many of them, who then reverted to their old accusation that Jesus was a demoniac. He had a devil. He was possessed. He was a madman. He was out of his mind. Others, however... Probably just the small minority of the logical Jews, remember Nicodemus and uh, Gamaliel and maybe Joseph of Arimathea spoke up and said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of a blind of the blind? So again, as we've seen previously, both in John seven forty three and John nine nine sixteen, there was a division among these religious leaders. And that is not really surprising at all if we think about who Jesus is. Hadn't he just claimed to be the door in verses 7 and 9? And doesn't a door divide those who are on the inside from those who are on the outside? Doesn't a door shut some people in while it shuts other people out at the same time? And Jesus had just claimed to be the good shepherd and isn't part of the responsibility of a shepherd to separate the sheep from the goats. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Let me ask, what about you this morning? Are you on the outside or the inside of the door of salvation, which is Jesus Christ? If you happen to realize that you have never personally trusted in Christ as your sin bearer who willingly died to take your death penalty, and if you realize that you need to repent of your sin 
and ask his forgiveness, then he invites you right now to enter in by way of him, by way of your genuine faith in him, and be saved this very moment. You know, he desires to be your personal and your intimate good shepherd. So if you've heard his voice calling you at any time through this study of his word, then you can know with certainty that he wants you to be one of his sheep. He's calling you now by name. He wants you to, to leave the dead fold of the world that you are currently in and to enter into a personal sheep-shepherd relationship with him and with God the Father and to become part of the one flock of Christianity and enter into the abundant life that he provides for those that are his. There have been Jews and Gentiles alike down through the centuries who have recognized Jesus Christ as the good, the great, and the chief shepherd and have entered through him as the door to eternal life. And once they have, they experientially know the truth of his loving care and his protection and his guidance. Father, I pray that each one here has heard his voice and has or will even today now respond to his call to follow him in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Now we ask that you would bless us through Shelby's ministry for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.